0: Welcome to the Going to Eleven podcast, where we discuss all aspects of audio production from the stage to the studio. My name is Dave Stagel, and I'm a mixing and recording engineer based in the Atlanta area, and today I am once again joined by my good friend Marco Garino. Today, we are going to wrap up our conversation on vocals, but before we get into that, I just want to remind you we have an email for the podcast where you can send us your comments, questions, and suggestions. That email is podcast at going 11com We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to drop us a line. Now, this conversation is the third part of a longer talk that we actually recorded late last year. If you missed Any of our previous episodes, you can check them out along with other podcast episodes, articles I've written, and some videos I've produced on my website, going211.com. You can also find out about some of the audio training and coaching services I offer up there as well. But enough of that, let's jump back into our conversation. Let's talk about compression on a vocal. This is another thing I think. Da, da, da. Yeah. <laughs> this is another area I think that is genre dependent for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm doing a jazz thing, I am going to approach that different than a rock band kind of thing. But right. in general, To me, with anything where it's kind of a band-related, you know, modern rock band, modern worship, Mm -hmm. modern country, whatever, vocals need a lot of compression. They are extremely dynamic, Mm -hmm. and you can't get them to sit with a band if dynamically they are all over the map. It's like a karaoke thing at that point. For me, I want to use compression... To get the dynamics of the vocal to more closely match the dynamics of the band, and if someone's got you know a distorted guitar, well, distorted guitars are just compressed. That's what distortion yep. is; it's compression. So mm-hmm. I need to get that vocal to sit with that. So I, I'll do a lot of compression, and you know, I guess I should be cautious on saying a lot because that can mean different things to a lot of people. So it's what feels right to me. I know from looking at gain reduction meters, what I do in the studio are a little bit different from what I do live. And in Mm -hmm. a live mixing environment, I end up tending to do less compression on the vocal. And this is just by ear, just from seeing Mm -hmm. them in front of me and hearing it all through the PA, I tend to not do as much compression live. In the studio, I tend to hit things probably a little harder, but it just depends. And when I say uh, hitting it a little harder, I mean relative to mixing the same type of material in a live environment, because it's all dependent. I mean, some of the acoustic stuff I've been doing lately, studio projects, there is not a lot of compression on the vocals, most of what I'm doing is riding faders at a really mm-hmm. low level and automating things to keep mm-hmm. the vocal even. But I don't wanna take the dynamic out because the thing that happens if you take too much of the dynamic out, you start taking the emotion of the performance yep. out that the performer might've been naturally putting in there.
1: I'll take that as a jump off point to say, this goes to one of the the big things I'm always telling people is, as an audio engineer, learn the freaking music. If you don't know what the vocalist, let alone the band, you know, if you don't know where the guitar solo is to shelf the fader up for the guitar solo for an intro or whatever, but if you don't know that on bridge one, half the band drops out, and like you're like, oh yeah, I know the band drops out on the bridge, but if you don't think about, okay, the band drops and the vocals get softer and all that stuff, you could probably get away with a little bit less compression and more fader riding, Cause I sit there and fidget with faders all day long on a console and just making minor, you know, one two dBs up and down kind of stuff, let you know on groups or even on vocals. And sometimes it's a lot more than that. (laughs) But you know, like if you actually know what you're doing with the song, you could probably get away with a little bit less compression and stop hiding behind that as a mask. I say that loosely. You get what I'm saying, and you know, just mix with your faders more and don't overcompress the living crap out of everything. But yeah. Compression is a helpful thing, too. <laughs> and it is. When you have, you know, a, a vocal performance that in the verse of a song or in a bridge to that dynamic range compared to the end of a last chorus is, you know, 16, 18, 20 plus dB difference, you know, you're, either you're going to have to make it up in compression or you're going to have to make it up in a volume fader. One way or the other, you've got to get the vocal loud. And, yeah, I think, and this
0: is, you know, dynamics is a big hairy Subject. Mm-hmm. So, with me, with riding vocals, because I always, especially live, I always have a finger on the lead vocal. Yep. You know, 98% of the time, it is always there. And I'm really particular about laying a console out so that I can bank and that vocal will never move. It will always be under my finger and I mm. can just do whatever I need to do that. The rides I'm doing, though, are more of the kind of bigger general level changes. So, like you mentioned, you go into that bridge and it gets real quiet. I'm going to ride a vocal down to deal with that or ride it up in the chorus when the chorus gets big. That's Mm -hmm. not what compression is there for me. Really, on anything, I don't. I'm not trying to pin the thing so that I never have to touch a fader. Where -hmm. compression is important for me on vocals a lot of times is when you're going word to word, phrase to phrase of a vocal, especially in a live environment. I can't move fast enough, right? Keep that consistent so that every word is heard by mm-hmm. the audience or the listeners. So that's where compression comes in handy for me. And plus with compression, you can sit your vocals back a little more in the mix, which can give the mix a lot more emotional power because you can get you know more of that emotion from the band mm-hmm. underneath supporting the vocal and just filling kind of the space around it. Whereas if you have to put this vocal way, way on top of the band, it's like, yeah, the vocals, it can sound good and it can sound great. And, you know, in a live environment, I probably mix vocals hotter than I do in the studio. That's Mm -hmm. just kind of a natural thing. Some of it is because I'm not doing as much compression on them. So they're going to end up on top a little bit more. But it just, that usually tends to feel better to me. But I'm also mixing it a lot louder level, and people are listening at a louder level, so you can have a little more space, I think, Mm -hmm. level-wise between the vocal and the rest of the instrumentation. But a little bit more compression, though, and you can sync that vocal back a little more, and it will still stay on top, but it will have the bed of the music closer.
1: Yeah, I think that lends itself to, here's a good Uh, amongst others here's a good takeaway out of this episode is like if you feel like your mix is struggling with some polish if your compressions are not right on your vocals and you feel like your vocals are always sitting too loud but you don't know what to do about it It might be a compression thing of there's not enough or there's too much and you've compensated with the volume fader accordingly. But I feel like a lot of mixes that I go into and listen to in some other church or listen to a broadcast mix, for example, it's like, well, if the vocal didn't have so much dynamic space and you had a little bit more compression on, I'm not saying kill it, but you know, it, they can be too unruly sometimes, and it's like, where I'm always looking like, okay, when they hit the last word at the end of a phrase, like, is it lost, or can you still hear it? And so right. that kind of stuff, it's like, hey, if you can help smooth some of that things out in the vocal performance, yeah, you don't have to have them sitting crazy in front of the band, and then you actually hear the band, not because they're mixed louder, but because your mix is tighter. So, I'm gonna get off my soapbox, but...
0: No, yeah, I, think I, think, that's, I think that's good. A few things I want to mention about Compression in addition to all this on vocalists. A lot of times we get really hung up on how much gain reduction we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that does give us some information. For me, the amount of gain reduction is, is, isn't as important as how much the meter is moving. If mm-hmm. the meter is moving a bunch, that's more a sign to me that there's a lot of compression happening versus if it just goes down and is hanging out at the same spot, well, now you're not really compressing a lot. You're just doing right. You know, overall attenuation on it. So exactly. the movement of the meter is important to me. What I think would probably help a lot of people to look at more is the ratio of yes. the compressor, because the ratio is a better indicator of how much compression you're actually going to do. And what I find is less experienced vocals usually need more compression. And by more, I mean higher ratios, not necessarily more gain reduction. Mm -hmm. They just need more higher ratios, maybe more limiting Mm -hmm. to kind of level it out. The other thing that you have to watch is your attack and release settings on a compressor. So you know, going back to what I was talking about where I want to level things off, you know, basically from phrase to phrase, word to word, maybe syllable to syllable, that's getting kind of tight. If I'm trying to adjust all these levels, this is all timing that's happening really, really fast. Mm -hmm. So, long release times, medium release times are not going to work for me on that because I need the compressor to release and, you know, we haven't We haven't done an episode on attack and release times, but one of the things that gets misunderstood about these is these are speed controls for Mm -hmm. how fast your compressor attenuates or reduces the signal and Mm -hmm. how fast it turns it back up. They're not delay controls not delay controls, not delay controls. I can't say that enough time. I've heard a lot of people talk about these and they say it's like a pre-delay. It is absolutely not like a pre-delay. I have a video demonstrating this and you can see how the curve changes depending Mm -hmm. on how you adjust that. Those are rate controls. And this is Mm -hmm. really important when you're you're thinking about this kind of stuff. So if you want to level something out and you've got a lot of tight timing, you have to use faster times so that the compressor moves faster to adjust Mm -hmm. for all of that stuff. On attack time, the thing you want to watch is, is it dulling the vocal? That may be a good thing, it may be a bad thing, but a lot of times if you go too fast on an attack time, you will kind of take off the consonants and you'll take mm-hmm. off the articulation of the yep. vocal. So, you want to use a s- slow enough attack time and it'll probably still be fast because let's face it, we just compressors are kind of fast most of the mm-hmm. time. But you want to give it a slow enough attack time that's still fast so that you're not killing the consonants, you're not killing the tone. Of your vocal. And then with the release time, you don't want that so long that it's holding things and clamping it down. I don't think, anyways. Now, I do tend to be a little more aggressive with compression on vocalists. I like 1176 style compressors on vocals. And I think we've talked about this in a previous episode that 1176s go from fast a stupid fast. I mean, there's there is no slow really with the attacks, anyways, and the yep. the release times. It's probably pretty fast to maybe a medium release on or a, a f- slow fast like the or the whatever whatever the slowest setting is that you would still call fast. I mean, that might be more <laughs> the release side. I think you can. I think you can slow those down a lot on eleven seventy sixes. But I mean, what do you think about that stuff?
1: No, I'm, I'm the same way. And I, and I think that that lends itself a lot to what you were saying earlier is, that, you know, if you're trying to help even out a performance, even out phrase differences or or word differences at the end of a sentence or something, you know, yeah, if you're if your release is too slow, you know, you're not doing anything. And you even to hop back before that, you said something a couple of minutes ago that like if you're needle was just hanging out dimed at neg 24 or something on on an 1176 or whatever well but that's bad if it, but anyway. well yeah. maybe not maybe not maybe not that's right we're not gonna <laughs> if, if your needle's sitting there dimed all you've done is made it quieter and so that'd be a quick thing to look at is like hey if your attack and release settings are off and all it's doing is just sitting constantly compressed all you've done is made the dang thing quieter. And what I'll say that, and I'm because I'm guilty of this. And it took me screwing something up once to really realize how bad this affected stuff was. If you are trying to fight dynamic problems and your release is too slow, and all it's doing is just diming that needle in on gain reduction. As soon as they stop singing, what's going to happen is all of your noises is there times all of that input gain yep. to the compressor if it's an eleven seventy six or whatever. So you've gone from a really tight compressed vocal that just got knocked down 10 dB to adding 10 dB of input gain to every single piece of noise coming into that microphone, which in turn is just going to shriek. Because <laughs> I was fighting a, a, an RF mic one Sunday at a church this is years ago, and, and I was just like, what in the crap is wrong with this thing. I'm like, I'm not clipping. It's not, any, I can't just keep adding more EQ to cut stuff. And I finally went and looked at my 1176 and the thing was just dimed wide open and it wasn't doing anything. And then I had the console compressor compressing as well. And just, this just, just went down this rabbit hole of, I should have gone through and looked at my file sooner. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, and I started undoing some of my compression and I was like, Oh, there's the other half of the vocal. Cause it was being knocked down 30 DB on the, you know, the needle was dimed wide open. So anyways, all of that to say, you know, it I, I kind of hinted at this earlier about overcompressing leading to feedback issues on monitors and the PA. I mean, it'll do it too there. But, you know, yeah, if if you're if your release is too slow where you're not actually seeing any variation in your phrases and words. You know, that might be cool on a bus compressor or something. And even then, that may not be what you're going for. But on in terms of an individual vocal compressor, yeah, if it's too slow, all you've done is just made it quieter. There's no actual variation in your compression. And I think it was good what you said, too, about what an attack and release actually is. It's not just a pre-delay.
0: <laughs> no, it's not. And it's deceiving, I think, because when we play around with attack times on things like drums, we mm-hmm. feel like oh, it's giving us all this extra punch and stuff. And yeah, perceptually, that's what happens when you slow down the attenuation. It's going, it's just slowing down. But they don't wait. The minute you cross a threshold, your compressor works, period. And this is easy to demonstrate. (laughs) You can run test tones and do it, but that's the way they work. Compressors, once you go past that threshold, it's always working. It's either turning it down or it's turning it back up but it's yep. always working. Your attack and release are just how fast it's going to do that action. So that was a whole side thing. Now we don't have to have an episode on that. We just covered it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things you brought up, and I'm going to emphasize this, you know, the, the potential for feedback in a live environment is always there. And as you just said, you've got to keep in mind, however deep, you're putting that thing into attenuation. If you're doing any kind of makeup gain, really, you're going to, you know, you need that extra headroom. Mm -hmm. So you've always got to remember when you're adding extra gain, whether it's makeup gain or just an output on a compressor, because I've seen guys where they just, they have that gain knob turned up, on the output of their compressor, even if the compressor's not doing anything on a digital console, you've gotta keep that in the back of your mind as overall headroom. You're taking that away from your mix bus, you're taking it away from your gain before feedback when you do that. So keep that in mind. It's like, yeah, if you wanna hit it hard in places, just remember you might need to make up for that at some point and when they stop singing, like you said, yep. <laughs> It might take off. There are some ways you can uh, get around that. I know I use um
1: I said yeah, there's this plugin called PSE. <laughs> yeah, there's this plugin.
0: Yeah, there well you can use there's there's the PSE plugin or I use the gates in Rvox sometimes mm. and I use the gate in max volume sometimes because those are really gentle gates. A lot of times they don't even work like yep. gates and they just kind it's of just a reducer. Turn it down a little bit. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that can help with cleaning some of that stuff up on a live stage. Sometimes, though, sometimes those gates can be helpful in a studio setting, though, because they will reduce the breaths. Because that's something, you know, when we compress vocals a lot, and maybe this is something we should talk about. when we compress vocals a lot, it often tends to increase sibilance because, again... With the attack settings of our compressor, you know, since the sibilance is all that high-frequency junk in there, well, the high-frequency stuff is the stuff that doesn't seem to get turned down to our ears when we start slowing the attack down. So a lot of compression can actually make sibilance even worse. Mm -hmm. The other thing a lot of compression can do is since we're using this compressor to kind of bring up our quieter stuff, well, now we're bringing up the breaths And sometimes Mm -hmm. if you've got a singer who they're really taking big breaths to begin with, sometimes you can make those breaths as loud as the vocal itself if you're not careful. And, you know, in a studio environment, that kind of stuff is a lot easier to deal with because we can go in, we can automate the breaths down, we can clean that kind of stuff up. I've got, you know, RX has a breath control function that you can go through and it'll... Mm -hmm. It'll take care of stuff for that if you want. Sometimes I will use that gate, though, in our Vox to bring the breaths down a little bit to keep it from, you know, just like making it sound like someone went (gasps) Mm -mm. and then started singing. And that's something, if you know, in general, if you're listening to recordings and you want to hear what does compression sound like, if you're listening to like a pop recording and modern ones they're probably taking it all out but if you go back 25 mm-hmm. years or so and listen to some of that stuff you hear breaths that are really loud it's yep. a good chance that that vocal is pretty compressed mm-hmm. I don't know is that enough on compression if we kicked that one enough we, say, did, we, a whole, we, we, way, we did a whole by the way we did a whole big podcast on a couple of episodes, like a lot of episodes on, <laughs> on different compressor types. Oh, you know what? One other thing I was going to ask you real quick.
1: Do you use parallel compression on vocals? I have done it in studios sometimes. I don't find myself doing it live, but again, it's because I don't find myself having time to actually set it up and do it and be able to like tweak it where it's actually beneficial to anything, so... No question mark. <laughs> okay.
0: I personally, I don't use it on vocals. I'm not a big fan of it live. I think it's a quicker way to sort of lose gain before feedback and have yeah. it take away. And for me, maybe it's just I've been mixing a while and kind of know like it's it's not a part of what I'm going for just sonically on mm. a vocal. I do know engineers who use parallel compression on vocals to great success. Mm -hmm. But it's just not generally what I'm trying to get out of a vocal. And I don't really do it in the studio either. I've tried it in the studio, and I've tried various types of parallel compression. Like if you do some research on what they call the uh, Motown exciting compressor, that's a form of parallel compression to be Mm -hmm. used that sort of excites the top end. I did that for a long time, but I haven't done it probably in the last... Four or five years. So Mm -hmm. I'm pretty straight up on my vocals these days. And a lot of that too was because, you know, as I started studying the engineers I really have admired over the years, I just found that they weren't doing it. So when I think of the vocals that for me are like the great vocal recordings that are in my head. Right. They weren't done with parallel compression. So, mm-hmm. I don't go there. I mean, it's I don't know that there's anything wrong with doing it. It's just not my thing. I think parallel compression is... Boy, there's a lot of topics we kind of touching on today that are going to be good for another <laughs> one. Parallel compression, to me, is um, really kind of an overblown thing these days. I think a lot of people are using it a lot and not always for the right reasons. So, you know, I think... Figure out how to use a, a regular compressor first and then play around with parallel compression if you'd like. I, I wouldn't say don't do it because, you know, again, as I said, I know guys who are really, really good at using it and have done incredible things with it, but it just hasn't right. been
1: my thing. You got any uh, last kind of one or two nuggets of wisdom in terms of vocals, whether it's processing or microphone stuff, or you might not have thought about this wisdom.
0: Well, you know, one topic we haven't gotten into, and I don't think we're going to get into it today because it might be a little longer and we're we're running long as it is, and that would be dynamic EQ. And that's kind of the next step for me in dealing with a vocal. But one particular part of dynamic eq that i think is really important for guys is a deesser mm. and managing sibilance whether we're in a studio environment or a live arena on the live side if we rewind 15 years i don't know that deessers mattered as much but the fidelity of modern loudspeakers is so much greater to me than what we had all that Greater fidelity also brings with it greater high-frequency content. And sibilance can be a really big issue in modern PAs. It's a really big issue in recordings. You know, on the days of analog tape, tape tended to kind of eat some of that sibilance, I think. And all that analog goodness we had, the saturation and stuff, kind of would do stuff to it to soften it. In digital world... We don't have that anymore. So, you know, the kind of first place I would go with dynamic equalization on a vocal is some form of DSing. There are a lot of different DSers out there. Personally, for me on the live side, I will just say that I have not found an onboard DSer in any live console that worked to my liking. I don't yeah. care for really any of them. Most of them to me. They don't DS. They just make the S's sound compressed. And right. that's not what I want. They just end up making the S's more smeary and kind of longer. Maybe they take out some of the harshness, but they end up just making it not sound like a natural S to me. So, you know, maybe there there is one out there that works really good or other guys might have better luck with them. Personally... In the way I dial in vocals, I haven't had a lot of luck with the onboard DSers. So for me, I usually go to a plug in to do that. Something I'll say though about plug in DSers is I never feel like there is a one size fits all.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What works on a vocalist, sometimes they don't work on talking heads or spoken word, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like mic choice in a way and compressor choice and really anything where you have to, you know, ideally, I guess, you want to pair the right processing, the right microphone, you know, all of your gear with your source so that it brings out the best in your source. Exactly. You know, you can't always do that, but that's just something to think about, you know just because you put a de on there, it might not be the right one. If you're working with somebody and it doesn't seem to be right, try a different one. And I know Waves has three different de You've got Sibilance, which is their most recent release that came out mm-hmm. maybe a year or two within the last couple of years, I think. Then there's the Renaissance de and then there's just the de I've made all three of those work to different degrees. I usually start with Sibilance, then I try the Renaissance, then I use the
1: de they all and still sibil- work yeah sibilance is really good about being transparent and not destroying the vocal
0: yeah I think that's the only other thing because you know reverb and delay I mean there's a lot of other stuff that
1: goes on vocals but yeah it's all effects and spatial stuff
0: yeah and I, I think for what we've got here you know the biggest thing I think why people are having trouble with vocals is it's the EQ, it's the filtering side, and just getting them to sound natural. The the hard thing with vocals that we take for granted is we are used to hearing people constantly. You know, we're, we're having conversations with people all day long. We know what the human voice is supposed to sound like. So when you put it through a PA or mm-hmm. through a set of speakers, car stereo speakers or your TV or studio monitors, if that doesn't sound the way we expect a voice to sound, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it throws everything in the entire mix off. So, I think if you're going to do engineering, audio engineering, you're going to be serious about it. You really have to develop your EQ chops. Mm -hmm. It'll help you with vocals, it'll help you with drums, guitars, all of that stuff. That's the area when I'm out training... That's the biggest area that I find people struggle with after, you know just being able to put up a basic kind of musical balance. You know, those are the two biggest skills that a lot of guys just they haven't quite developed yet. So if you're struggling with your vocals, work on your EQ chops. That'd be my, my last thing I think I could add. Unless you say a bunch of stuff now, and I want to tack onto it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I and I think that's you know that's the biggest thing that I'm seeing people lacking with is ear training, and as you know, not just EQ of vocals, but in general. And it's like if you can call whatever words you want to call it, whether it's boomy or bitey or whatever, but in general, it's like if you can't identify ranges of frequencies to say, you know, hey, if I, I think anyone could say boomy or muddy is a good well universal word to be like this vocal is too boomy or muddy okay well how do i fix that like if i'm hearing it and my eq's flat what do i need to go look for in terms of frequency regions that would be contributing to it being boomy or muddy or it's way too harsh. Okay, what's the harsh frequencies that I should look at because I don't think it's good to rely solely on an RTA if you have it on a desk, you know, you need to be able to identify with your ear, okay, what's the frequencies, not specifically, but at least a range of frequencies that You know, if something sounds harsh, is it at 600 hertz or is it maybe like the 2, 3K thing? Being able to identify with your ear when you hear something and it's a problem, where should you look for it? And so I think that's if people spent more time doing ear training, which I get it lends itself to. Do you have virtual sound check or do you have a way in a studio environment at home to work on stuff? Because you can't always polish that and work on that live. But I feel like that's a big thing that a lot of people are are struggling with.
0: Yeah, and I think you can, you know, maybe you don't have a way to practice this at home that you think of, but you probably do. I mean, there are DAWs out there these days that you can pick up that are free. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily need to have a vocal. If you can get a recording of a isolated vocal, great, but... You know, get a recording. You could use regular music even when you're trying to do ear training. Mm -hmm. Put something into your DAW, get a decent set of headphones, and just start messing around with the EQ and start training your ears, getting used to that. You know, what happens when you adjust X frequency? What happens when you adjust Y frequency? Boost it, cut it, get used to that. What you want to do is you want to get to the point where you can get in the ballpark, and then you need to start yep. learning how to refine from yep. there. You know, Do you need to go higher? Do you need to go lower? Do you need to cut it deeper? Do you need to boost more? Do you need to go wider? Do you need to go narrow? This takes time, and it takes practice. This isn't something where you can just have the information, and now you're going to be great at EQ. This is mm-hmm. one part of audio, I think, where you have to exercise, you have to do it over and over again. And don't just rely on an EQ kind of cheat sheet. I mean, those can be helpful when you're getting started. And if your ears right now aren't quite trained to the point where you can do all this EQ stuff, that might help you and it might bail you out. I know when I was on church staff and I had a lot of volunteers, I printed out those cheat sheets and they were helpful for my volunteers who were not they are not engineering every day of the week or every week for that matter. Now, I think even if that's the case for you and you're kind of a weekend warrior or you know a part-time engineer, that's great. You still have to develop these chops if you're going to do it long-term because it's, it's just going to help you in the end and it's mm-hmm. going to help you get better results and it's going to make everybody happier with what you're doing and you're going to feel better about what you're doing. I think the biggest confidence booster for me as an engineer was when I started getting my head wrapped around how to properly use an EQ. More than a compressor, more than reverbs and delays, for me it was all about EQ. That other stuff is probably more fun, and compressors are challenging too, but EQ was what kind of got me really good results, was when I figured out how to use that and really make the most of it. So
1: Yeah. And I think I know this is I'll beat this until it's a dead horse. But, you know, the thing that I think we both could say is a holistic 10,000 foot point of view from this, too, is make sure that you're actually hearing stuff right. Because if you can't hear what you're EQing properly, because your PA is not reflecting what's coming off the desk, that's a problem. And so you're always going to make bad EQ choices if you have a bad starting point with your PA. And, nothing. I mean, nobody's going to be perfect. Nobody's going to have a perfect room and a perfect everything or not most people. And so, like, that's fine, but that can drastically mess up, you know, if you're globally dumping a whole bunch of 150 or 200 hertz out of everything on your mix, whether it's drum stuff or vocals or whatever, you might have a PA problem. So, not to be, you know, keep routing that one up constantly, but that's more of an issue than people realize I think a lot of times or they think their PA sounds good and they think it's constantly an EQ thing and you go up and look at their EQ and it's like well, all you did was made it quieter you did <laughs> your, yeah. your fuse are really wide and the gains kicked so far down and now your gain structure is messed up and it's like well you didn't help anything let's look at your PA but I'm not going to get on that horse again but yeah
0: I think this is a good place to wrap up I mean we clearly have more stuff to talk about with vocals and perhaps we will do a future episode on taking your vocals to even the next level but I think this is a good place for us to stop right now because you know the fundamentals and that's really what we've talked about over these last couple of episodes the fundamentals are king so yeah you know get a handle on those and I think you can you can really really make some progress in your mixing so Marco where can people Get a hold of you on social media if they want to reach out and find you and see what you're up to.
1: Yeah, best place to keep up with what I'm doing currently is on Instagram. That's pretty much what I use more than anything else. Um, you can find me at MGProATL, and uh, I try to keep that posted pretty frequently of all the the current things that I'm doing with projects and you know audio work and music work and stuff. So that's the best place to keep up with me there. What about you, Dave?
0: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at fohdave, Instagram F-O-H 1. And of course, if you go to going 11com you will see articles and videos and more podcasts up there. So you can always, always find me there. And of course, don't forget about our email address for the podcast, which is podcast at 11com If you've got comments for us, if you've got suggestions for topics, Guests we should talk to, please drop us a line. Even if you're just enjoying it, we really appreciate that. And if you find this helpful, please share it with somebody you think it can help. Ratings on iTunes, those are wonderful. But I think if you share it directly with somebody who you think it'll benefit, that goes a whole lot further. So, Absolutely. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we will talk to you soon.